6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640 the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of Ecclesiastes, chapters 5 and 6. Well, we're continuing our survey, if you will, exploration of... The book of Ecclesiastes, and we're in session four, and we'll just take a couple of chapters, five and six tonight, to explore it. Solomon's going to address the issue of values, or wealth, or money, among other things. And so, uh, obviously, a subject to dear all of us. I like to always start with this slide, the first slide. It's in Hebrew, just to remind us that we are dealing with the translation. And uh, the first few verses really summarize the book because we find it there and also at the end. Similar passage, the word of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. It was fashionable among some scholars to question that Solomon really wrote it, but those criticisms have pretty much fallen into uh, scholastic disrepute. We, we believe that it really was written by Solomon for lots of reasons. Vanity of vanities, saith the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. That's the summary of the book, but can be misleading. Most of the commentators don't see beyond that superficial summary in verse 2. But anyway, uh, Solomon continues, What profit hath a man of all his labor which he taketh under the sun? Notice this is man's knowledge, and he's focusing on all that's under the sun. What does that exclude? Heaven, eternity, the life after death, etc. So the scope of his inquiry is uh, circumscribed. We need to recognize that because Solomon will penetrate that veil to look beyond that, but you have to watch what he says very carefully. Ecclesiastes, in the Hebrew is Koheleth, which actually doesn't mean the preacher, it means the assembler, is calling an assembly. Uh, calling him a preacher comes close. In the Greek translation, in the Septuagint, the word for Koheleth is ecclesia, which is the assembly, you know, the, assembly uh, the called ones. And so it's from the Latin translation from the Greek that we get Ecclesiastes. Uh, many people wonder, where does it get its name? Well, it's from the Greek translation of the Hebrew word. The Hebrew title is Koaleth, which is generally rendered the preacher. And this is Solomon's sermon on the natural man's quest for the chief good. And it's destined to frustration without God. And this is a cumulative treatise. It is actually quite organized. It's amazing how many scholars miss the really the way it's structured. And we'll try to pick that up as we go. And of course, it concludes all is vanity, but that's myopic. It actually goes beyond that. It's not pessimistic. It, better description is that it's very bravely honest about the realities that face the natural man. And if you watch carefully, you'll see that he looks beyond life's ironies and, and uh, frustrations toward the divine control of life and the future restitutions in life, which... Uh, uh, make us a little more comfortable. Many people are very uncomfortable with this book, and I have to admit I was too before I really got into it, because it's so there's so, there are things in this book that are not true. Stuff in the Bible not true. Yes, because it's man's perspective, which is myopic, limited, and incomplete. And the final significance 
is let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man, for God shall bring into every work into judgment and with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. That's in chapter 12, the last chapter of the book. So you need to understand that uh, Solomon's uh, limitations are not absolute, that he does uh, look beyond the immediate, if you will. And just to remind you, I'd like to open with uh, uh, a New Testament perspective of this. Remember what Jesus said, I come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. So to the extent that that this book harbors on the vain and the limited and the futility, let's realize that we have a New Testament, we're not limited to this. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul reminds us, that says, My beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. That's in a sense a rebuttal to the accusations that are levied at Ecclesiastes. So we're in Ecclesiastes chapter, we'll start with chapter 5, about values. You know, it's interesting, as I was starting to prepare for this, I couldn't resist noticing our newspapers a few days ago, back yesterday. Court Lane Press says the poverty rate falls. We also happen to get the Idaho Spokesman Review, which says U.S. poverty rate on the rise. And uh, these are these two newspapers, same day, and I want you to notice... <laughs> So you can't believe what you see in the papers, <laughs> by definition. So I couldn't resist, since the subject tonight is wealth and poverty and money and values, I couldn't resist pointing out that uh, I suspect from this brief uh, exposure that I won't find my answers in the in the mainline media. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it's interesting. Solomon couldn't discuss life under the sun, which is really the subject of the book, without discussing money. You know, you know the old saying, when your outgo exceeds your income, your upkeep uh, will be your downfall. So, so and of course, Solomon was pretty wealthy, wealthiest probably a guy alive at that time, and he uh, uh, knew what he was talking about. And some of the wisdom of Solomon, you'll find in the book of Proverbs, he talks a lot about money. Obviously, some of it's included here in this book. But he's going to go beyond just money. He's going to talk about the values of life in general. He's going to issue about three warnings that relate to the values of life. The first is, don't rob the Lord. That's his first of three warnings. We'd seen him in the previous chapters. He visited the courtroom, the marketplace, the highway, and the palace. And uh, now he's going to visit the temple, which is interesting. He's going to draw his idioms from that. It's going to be interesting because he supervised the building of that temple. Let's keep that in mind. It's kind of interesting. And uh, he watches the worshipers come and go, He uh, seeing them praise God and praying and sacrificing and making vows. But he notes that they were not sincere in their worship. They weren't sincere. In fact, he's, uh, he's going to suggest that they left their, the sacred precincts in worse shape than when they had entered. And what was their sin? Very simply this. They were robbing God of the reverence and honor that he deserved. Isn't that an interesting way to put it? When you fail to give God reference, you're stealing from his honor. Interesting. You see, that's one of the problems. You know, if you start studying theology, sometimes we really have a tough time with a doctrine called the depravity of man. Why is man really deliver, you know, guilty of such extreme sin? And the problem isn't just the sinfulness of man. The problem is that we fail to underestimate the holiness of God. It's that gap between the two. And looking at that gap, we fail to appreciate just how holy he is and how much we demean him when we fail to acknowledge that holiness. 
And uh, that's what we tried to deal with. There's only one book in the Bible that really deals with holiness, the book of Leviticus. And some uh, scholars would argue it's the most important book in the Bible in many ways. But in any case, let's move on. You know, he's going to say that they're robbing God because of their the, the, their acts of worship were perfunctory, they were insincere, they were hypocritical. And as I prepare those notes, they pinch a little. How many of us are less sincere than we need to be? How many of our activities uh, with regard to the Lord are perfunctory, routine, a matter of ritual? Well, he starts off by saying, Keep thy foot where thou goest in the house of God. Or that's another, in, in our vernacular, be watch your step when you enter the house of God. And be more ready to hear than to give the sacrifice of fools, for they consider not that they do evil. One can argue that the worship of God is the highest duty of the church. The worship of God is the highest duty. And uh, it has to come from devotion, serious devotion. And that implies yielded wills. So it's interesting that uh, if you look at Isaiah 1 and Amos 5 and other in Psalm 50, you'll discover that uh, for God's people to participate in uh, public worship while harboring unconfessed sin is uh, to ask for God's rebuke and judgment. Our first step as a preparation is to confess our sins as thoroughly and as completely as we can. Now, he's going to talk about several things. First thing he offers, it talks about here is sacrifices. Today we don't offer animals like they did in Old Testament times because Jesus' sacrifice uh, eclipsed all that. But we are deemed in the Scripture as priests of God. And so uh, we are to offer spiritual sacrifice to him. Our bodies in Romans 12, first two verses. Uh, we should offer... The, what kind of sacrifice do you bring to him? Well, our bodies, that's first. Romans 12, verse 1 and 2. Is your reference on that? The other sacrifice you bring to him are people that we've won to the Savior. That's something we can bring to the cross. And yes, we can bring money. Philippians 4.18 and other passages deal with that. Bring to him praise and good works. We speak of the sacrifice of praise. And we can bring to him, of all things, a broken heart. And our prayers of faith. But sacrifices are not substitutes for obedience. That's what King Saul is going to find out uh, when he tries to cover up his disobedience. And we'll discover that when we get to in 1 Samuel 15 and so on. Offerings of the hands without obedient faith in the heart become what Solomon calls sacrifice of fools. Because only a fool thinks he can deceive God. And when we come in sincerely to the throne of God, we're trying, we're trying to con him. When you put it that way, you realize how stupid that is. <laughs> con God? Fool him? Anyway, let's see what he goes on. He says, uh, uh, Psalm says, Be not rash with thy mouth. Well, that's our most unbridled asset, isn't it? Our mouths. Be not rash with thy mouth, and let not thine heart be hasty to utter anything before God. For God is in heaven, and thou upon earth. Therefore let thy words be few. And the word there for words is getting, also in Hebrew can mean things, not just articulated words. For a dream cometh through the multitude of business, and a fool's voice is known by the multitude of words. Um, this whole idea of being careless praying, you know, praying is serious business. And it's like marriage, it should not be lightly entered into or carelessly should be soberly in, in the fear of God. You know, it's interesting. If you and I had the opportunity to bring requests to the White House, 
we would probably prepare our words very carefully before getting there. We think very carefully what we're going to ask for, and we probably express it with, with some real care. And we don't do that when we go to the throne room of the universe. We pray, I think that the term I think of is flippantly, extemporaneously, from the hip. It says, watch out for hasty words and too many words, it says here. You know, the secret of an acceptable prayer is the prepared heart, according to Psalm 141. I'm going to put that in your notes, check it out. Because see, the mouth speaks what the heart contains. That's why the mouth can be so revealing and so disappointing. John Bunyan, Pilling's Progress, says, In prayer, it's better to have a heart without words than words without a heart. I like that. Something else I've noticed, if you've ever lived in a large corporation where you have top executives served by executive assistants or secretaries, whatever, you never see a secretary go into the boss's office without her notepad. Within that culture, it's almost the unpardonable sin. She never goes into the boss's office without a notepad. Why? Because she has a posture of expectation that at any time he might have something for her to do. She's not going to rely on her memory. She'll jot it down. Watch it. Notice that. When you're dealing with an official as as a direct assistant and so forth, they always go with a notepad. How many, I won't ask for a show of hands, but how many of you have a pad at your elbow when you pray with the Lord? You're going before the ruler of the world, <laughs> and you're not going there with the idea that he might have something to say to you? Isn't that interesting? I saw a couple of hands, revealing hands, and that didn't surprise me at all. In fact, if I can reconstruct a personal anecdote, my wife Nan was very close to, had a very dear friend that was a missionary in Thailand. It was very interesting that this missionary was at church in Thailand and was suddenly burdened deeply to pray for Nan. And during the service, she actually jotted down some thoughts as she prayed intensely for Nan. She came to the United States sometime later to visit, and she happened to have her prayer journal, and they were discussing this very event. And they checked the prayer journal. And when it was that Sunday morning in Thailand, it was the afternoon when we found out her firstborn son was, he died. He died suddenly without previous medical history on a, on a jog that he was taking on Saturday afternoon. And, uh, in Thailand, it was a missionary that knew that they needed prayer. And when we checked the time, it didn't occur until they happened. It was at the time that Chip was having his... Uh, he was in San Francisco. We lived here, of course. But anyway, um, prayer. Anyway, moving on. For a dream cometh through the multitude of business, and a fool's voice is known by the multitude of words. Proverbs twenty nine twenty says, Seest thou a man that is hasty in his words, there is more hope for a fool than for him. And uh, Spurgeon said, It's not the length of our prayers, but the strength of our prayers that makes the difference. Verse 4. When thou vowest a vow... Now he goes into vows. We'll talk a little bit about vows. 
When thou vowest a vow unto God, defer not to pay it, for he hath no pleasure in fools. Pay that which thou hast vowed. Better it is that thou shouldest not vow, than thou shouldest vow and not pay. Uh, this is his third admonition here. Since God does not require, anywhere in the scripture can we find where he requires his people to vow, to make vows, in order to be accepted by him. But there is the opportunity to express devotion if you feel to do so. And, and you can look at that. Numbers 30, Deuteronomy 23, it's alluded to in Acts 18. It's, and nowhere in the Old Testament is it required as a religious duty. And that's expressing Deuteronomy 23. But the fulfilling of a vow once given is considered a sacred and binding duty. A vow was as binding as an oath, and uh, therefore it was intended to be kept to the letter. And it was not to be lightly made. A father could veto a daughter's vow, interestingly enough. Uh, if a husband did not veto a wife's vow and then caused her to break it, the sin was his and not hers. Something to talk about on your way home? Numbers 30. Seems that vows were considered binding only when actually uttered in Deuteronomy 23. Persons including oneself, animals, land, other possessions could be vowed, but all of these would be, could be redeemed with money. That's often overlooked when people struggle over the issue of Jephthah's famous vow in the book of Judges. If it really was his daughter in terms of sacrifice, we, we, we won't get into all that here, but the point is uh, it could have been redeemed with money. So there's a lot of misunderstandings about Jephthah's vow, we think. It could be redeemed with money except in the case of a clean animal. In the case of land, houses, unclean animals, a fifth part of the estimated value was to be added to make up the redemption money. And in uh, case of land, the sum was either greater or smaller as the coming of the year of Jubilee, where all these rules are there in Leviticus 27. On the other hand, something that was an abomination, like the uh, hire of a prostitute, could not be made the object of a vow. So there's all kinds of rules. In the New Testament, uh, vows only, Jesus only refers to them, Matthew 15, Mark 7, primarily to condemn the abuse of them. So there's, the, the, uh, the more you study the vows, the more it seems to make sense to give them a wide berth. But if you make them, uh, it's binding. Okay, verse uh, 5. Uh, better it is that thou shouldest not vow, than thou shouldest vow and not pay. Suffer not thy mouth to cause thy flesh to sin. Neither say thou before the angel or the messenger or the preacher that it was an error. Wherefore should God be angry at thy voice and destroy the work of thine hands? So the main sin that's really focused here is making a vow and not keeping it. That, I think, is pretty straightforward. God, uh, God uh, hears what we say and holds us to our promises, unless they're so absurd that... Uh, he could only dismiss them. You often hear, how many of us probably, you often hear people who are sick make rash promises in the form of a vow, and then once they're healed, they seem to evaporate in, in, in loss of memory or whatever. I'm reminded, I was driving in a uh, with a couple of financiers back east once, and we were sharing stories as we were driving, we had an Irishman doing the driving in the back seat. There was a Jewish associate of mine that was started. They started sharing Irish and Jewish humor. I'll never forget Bernie telling the story about the merchant, the suicidal merchant. The merchant he was in a study at night, very down because things were. He was really he was really depressed, and he was about to open the desk drawer and uh, pull out a gun and end it. That he was that desperate. His wife Esther recognized, sensed that something was up. She came into the study and realized what was there, and he went through his litany of concerns. And she says, uh, "Your man, where's your faith? You should, you know, uh, 
pray to God and work the angles. He says, you know, I think you're right. In fact, I have a good idea. So the next morning, he went down the street to the local synagogue. He went to the synagogue. No one was around. He prayed to the God of Israel to, to if, that if he would help repair his businesses, he would give half his profits to the Jewish charity. Well, as the weeks went by, things went from bad to worse. His most loyal employees quit. His key customers evaporated. Things went from bad to worse. Once again, he's in the study that night, ready to just scratch. And uh, once again, Esther intervenes and scolds him. Says, you, 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 prayer's not a one-time thing. You've got to be a man of faith. You need to continue to pray and work the angles. He says, yeah, you're really right. So he, he says, i got another idea. Next morning, he goes down around a few blocks to the local Christian church. Looks around, there's no one around. He looks inside, there's no one there. So he slips into one of the pews. He decides to pray to the God of the New Testament. If you help me with my business, I'll give half my profits to the local Christian charities. Well, in the coming weeks, the strangest things happened. Business started to pick up. Costs started to go down. One store became seven. And he's in the dining room celebrating his newfound prosperity with Esther, saying, you know, our God is smarter than theirs because he knew I wouldn't keep my promises. (laughs) Now, the minute Bernie caught you laughing at that, he would accuse you of being (laughs) anti-Semitic. But... uh, what made it particularly uh, memorable to me because uh, he was at the time defending himself, I think, in seven lawsuits for not keeping his promises. So I thought the thing had a very uh, poignant sense of humor. But moving on to something more serious. Um, verse 7, For in the multitude of, thy, of dreams and many words there are also divers vanities, but fear thou God. What this seems to be alluding to is that people make often empty vows because they live in sort of a religious dream world. They think words are the same as deeds, and the worship is not serious, and the words are not dependable. You know, they enjoy the good feelings you get when you when you make promises to God, but they do themselves more harm than good because they dream about filling their vows, in their imagination at least, but they never get around to doing it. And uh, they practice, if you will, a make-believe religion. So this is, doesn't glorify God, it doesn't build Christian character. Uh, Psalm 66 says, I will go into thy house with burnt offerings. I will pay thee my vows, which my lips have uttered, and my mouth has spoken when I was in trouble. It's a commitment. I'm reminded when I was in the Soviet Union um, on a project, and uh, they have an expression there that, uh, in fact, I remember Al and I were looking out the window right outside the Kremlin. There's an old, old church being restored, and there was two workmen every day. We'd watch them down there, and they'd move some bricks from one pile over to another pile. We'd watch them do that one day, very slowly examining the bricks, and they'd move it from pile A to pile B. A day or so later, we happened to look out the same window of our, our place, and uh, <laughs> we saw them doing the same thing, but going from pile B back to pile A. Now, it's one thing to be sort of, we, 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 we didn't, you know, they're obviously not accomplishing anything. We found out why. See, they had a job. When the church was finished, they were out of work. And they wouldn't know what would be next, you see. And so the expression we discovered in those days in the Soviet Union was, we pretend to work and they pretend to pay us, see. So it was a... But it's, it almost... Uh, I was reminded by this when I see this here. You know, it's sort of like we pretend to pray and God pretends to bless us. See? It's a very, very an- analogous possibility here. 
And uh, when we rob the Lord of the worship and honor due Him, we're also robbing ourselves of the blessings that He bestows on those who worship Him in spirit and truth. Well, the second admonishment of uh, Solomon is don't rob others. All that was ways we rob ourselves. If thou seest the oppression of the poor and violent, perverting the judgment and justice in a province, marvel not at the matter, for he that is higher than the highest regardeth, and there be higher than they. And and uh, at the it means in, in terms of will or purpose in the Hebrew. So it's interesting. You see what's, what Solomon's just done from verse seven and eight. He's left the temple now, and he's gone to the city hall for us, if you will. There he witnesses again corruption, insincerity, what have you, by the politicians. The government officials are violating the law by using their authority to help themselves and not serve others. Is really what we're seeing here. And that's a practice condemned by Moses in Leviticus 19, Deuteronomy 24, all through the Torah, of course. I'm intrigued. He says, marvel not at the matter. In other words, Solomon says, don't be surprised when you see this. While he didn't approve of the practices, he, he knew too much about uh, the human way of doing things to expect anything different from the complicated bureaucracy in Israel. And here's the king talking, by the way. It's interesting to realize the perspective. We have a very wealthy king, a very wise king, also the guy that's a king, commenting on the bureaucracies he himself is uh, aware of. And uh, the NIV takes verse 8 a little differently. It says, One official is eyed by a higher one, and over them are both others higher still. Or the way the uh, Living Bible, Ken Taylor's uh, paraphrase says, that instead of a poor man getting a fair hearing, it says, The matter is lost in red tape and bureaucracy. I'm always intrigued by, I think I've quoted this before, but Ambrose Beers defines politics as a strife of interests masquerading as a contest of principles. He says, the conduct of public affairs for private advantage. How painfully true that seems to be. Now, verse 9 is a difficult one to translate. Not all the translations agree on this. But the general idea seems to be that in spite of the corruption and bureaucracy, it's better to have organized government and a king over the land than to have anarchy. So it's really speaking of that almost in economist terms. See, a few dishonest people may profit from corrupt practices, but everybody benefits if there's at least organized authority in place. And the ideal, of course, is to have a government that's honest and efficient, but that's a, you know, something devoutly to be wished. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Ecclesiastes. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android App Store or search K-House TV on your Roku streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your prayerful continued support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.